0: Welcome to Living the Dream Acting, the podcast. A podcast for actors, by actors, about acting. And here's the host, Christina Kipper Halstead.
1: Hi, I'm Christina, and on this podcast, I track down interviews with actors, writers, directors, and everyone involved in the performing arts from stage to screen, including artists like myself who live outside of New York and L.A., where the rules of the business can sometimes be a little different. I cover getting started, not giving up, and inspiration for actors everywhere who are trying to live their artistic dreams. Please join our community by liking us on Facebook, by leaving a comment on my website, livingthedreamacting.com, and by following me on Twitter at artistdreams. That's at Artist underscore Dreams. On this episode, we head to San Francisco to talk to actor and teacher Scott Coopwood. Please stick around for that while we do a little catching up. Since the last episode, I had some opportunity, I'm going to say opportunities for growth. That's how I'm going to put this. I wasn't sure how I was going to put it, but that's how I'm going to put it. (laughs) I had some opportunities for growth around what it's like to battle my natural desire to flee. Um, when faced with, uh, having to have conversations with people that I don't know that well. So on the spectrum of fight or flight, I am a hundred percent flight <laughs> when it comes to just like relationships in general, but also, um, in, you know, what many people think of as a bad word now, networking. But I had a couple of really great opportunities to do some networking or relationship building is a better way to put it. And um basically it was around I've been following some filmmakers uh, through social media. So um connecting with them either that I met them personally at one point or one of them I auditioned for um another one I had an opportunity to almost work with but I had never met him face to face in this particular case we had um only connected online and so I'd been following them and uh online you know building somewhat of a relationship that way um one of the um filmmakers that I had auditioned for in 2014 brought his film up to Sedona to show it. And I spent like the entire day um panicking and freaking out about how I was going to reintroduce myself. I really wanted to make a connection with him, but I was completely and totally nervous about it. And I kept practicing in my head while I was at my day job, you know, what I could say and how I would say it. And, you know, I I just want, I, again, I just want to be like everybody else. You want to be seen. You want to connect. You want to hopefully have an opportunity to do what you love at some point. And one of those ways is to to connect with other people who are creating things that you might be able to be a part of. So, again, spent the whole day, you know, freaking out in my head. And uh, finally got to the theater and I'm watching the film and I'm and I'm trying to really grab interesting moments that I say, oh, OK, I could say something about this or I could say something about that. And I really or I could ask a really good question at the Q&A about this. And then the Q&A comes and my nerves are through the roof, just like completely, um, you know, over the top. Like, all I want to do is be completely mute and then run away when no one's looking. But, um so I'm waiting for this, you know, the right opportunity. I, I think of just what I want to say. And then just as I'm about to get the nerves up, the Q&A is over. And I'm going, oh my God, okay, you can't disappoint yourself. You have to take this opportunity because it's in front of you. It's there. So I... In my head, I thought, you know what? You have to go into the lobby and connect with him. Go, just go introduce yourself. And I realized the most authentic me that I could be is the me that would go up to him and say, you know what? I don't know if you remember me. I'm totally nervous about, about saying hello to you, but you know, I auditioned for you and, you know, and kind of go from there. And as he's coming off the stage from the Q and A, and he's heading towards the lobby. Someone stops to talk to him. He looks over, and he's standing right in where my row is, right at the end of my row. He tells the guy that he's talking to to excuse him. He's like, excuse me for just a minute. He turns. He walks down the row and comes and reaches out his hand to me. He completely remembered me. He remembered me Maybe if not from the audition itself, but from our connecting online. And I, all I could think was, Oh, Mike, thank you, God. I was so relieved <laughs> and honored and overwhelmed all in the same breath. You know, I was like, Oh, in front of everyone, he made a point to come over to me. Um, so at that point, we talked for a little bit, but really what I got out of that moment, Um, on a personal level was I have to stop thinking that I don't rate. I, I, that I'm not memorable, that I don't leave an impression. I do. And, uh, I have something valuable to offer, even if it's just myself, not necessarily my talent, my work, my creation, but just me. And it was a really, it was a profound moment, not just, um, from a career standpoint, but personally. And I was really grateful that I had that experience. And, and then I got to run with that later on when, um, about a month later I went to another film festival, uh, just an indie film festival around here called the Jerome Film Festival. And another filmmaker that I've been following for a while that we, we almost had a chance to work together and it didn't quite work out. Um, he, uh, he was at the festival. And I felt much more confident about just approaching him and saying hi and talking to him and saying, Hey, do you remember me? Or I don't know if you know who I am, but you know, I'm, I'm so-and-so and, and this is how we know each other. And, and, and that went really well too. And, and again, it's not about something coming from it or something immediately uh coming my way. It's, it was about building courage, building confidence, and yes, building that relationship. It's a start. It's a start. And, and yes, it could lead to other things down the line. If nothing else, the confidence to make even more connections and build even more relationships. So, so yeah, so that's kind of my check-in for this week. And there were other, um, parts of the film festival that were positive and, uh, and interesting experiences. And maybe I'll talk about that on the next episode, but, um, I want to, really want to, yeah, just really grateful. So I want to jump into, uh, this interview with Scott Coopwood, professional Shakespearean actor. This guy is head over he- heels, passionate about Shakespeare. And, uh, it was an honor to, uh, take class with him. Again, I think I mentioned on the last episode, he had just finished up, uh, production of Macbeth at Berkeley Rep uh, with, just to name drop a little bit, with Francis McDormand starred as uh, Lady Macbeth, and um, he's got some other good things coming down the pipe. Part one of my conversation with Scott Coopwood is really about how he got started, how when he was a kid, he first connected to and fell in love with theater and how it changed his life. So without further ado, here is Scott Coopwood. The first thing I like to ask is I like to start with the origin story. So if you could share with us how you first fell in love with theater.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm happy to tell you that one because it was really profound and and it's ironic now that I end up in the classroom for for so much of my time. Um, I was, uh, I grew up in kind of a, a, a difficult childhood, um, uh, my home life was, without going into great detail, um, you know, I don't have the worst story of all, but, you know, I have a story that, um, when I was a kid, uh, I felt like, um, the Brady Bunch was the norm for mm-hmm. most middle class families in my neighborhood, certainly my friends. And, um, uh, I, I never realized that, um, my story was probably not terribly odd, but at the time that I was in it, you know, um, both of my parents, um, when they were together were alcoholics. Um, and there was a lot of anger and a lot of alcohol fueled, um, rage and resentment. And, um, it was at times terribly difficult. And so given that, uh, I never really, um, Extended myself uh, in in a a way that I was going to allow that to be viewed by my peers when I was in, say, junior high and early in high school. um, I always kind of felt like uh, like you know, not having a sleepover at my house. I didn't think that was a good idea. I would go to other people's houses, and uh, I would see you know, dinner at the table, and happy family, and bedtime, and you know, kids not putting their parents to bed because they couldn't, you know, they weren't functional anymore. Um, so, um, uh, when I was in high school, the irony is the amount of, I'm going to just bounce around. The irony is like, I'm sure we'll talk about Shakespeare at some point, but my freshman year of high school, when I, when I first was introduced to, to William, my English teacher was a lovely, lovely man who I still hold up this day as, as one of the people that I, I I learned a great deal from and who kind of took me under his wing. And I got the feeling that he kind of knew what was going on in my life and kind of looked out for me and gave me an outlet. And so, uh, but he couldn't do, he, he couldn't help me with the Shakespeare. And so freshman year, I hated Romeo and Juliet and we'll get back to this, but I hated it. Um, uh, but other than that, my freshman year English teacher, Mr. Bosworth, was absolutely amazing. And he introduced me to um, a creative outlet uh, that was um, uh, speech and debate, um, interpretive speaking and impromptu speaking and expository speaking and debate. And um, for some reason, he saw something in me that I didn't know, obviously, was in there and um, invited me to join the, the team, if you will. You know, he he ran that and there were meets on the weekends on Saturdays and um and that gave me a positive male role model and someone I could look up to and something to do all day on Saturdays and after school and it just meant a great deal to me I was also still playing sports at that time and um but uh uh, through I have a little bit of an uh issue with authority sometimes (laughs) and so I had a, a I had a run-in with a coach um, uh, my junior year, and um, I got suspended, i.e., kicked off of my baseball team. And I had to find something to do. Um, and so my drama department was doing a production of the the play version of the store of Mash, the film um, adapted from the novel. And at that time, when I was in high school, that was my favorite TV show. I absolutely adored MASH, and I all the way through, you know, my college experience and the finale. And, and I, I still, if it comes on, I'll watch it. Um, so I had this extra time that would fill in the gap and give me the credit hours that I needed to stay on track in, in my junior year in high school. I fully intended to continue playing sports. I always thought that that's what I'd end up doing. My father was the uh, associate uh, head coach at the University of Arizona down in Tucson. And the stadium there is named after my godfather. It's Sansett Field. And um that was my godfather, Frank Sancit. So when I was a little kid, you know, I used to get to sometimes skip school and and be the bat boy and sit in the dugout and you know meet these these heroes of mine on the athletic field. But anyway, so that went away for a while, and so I decided that I'd audition for this production of MASH and I got a small part in it, and I absolutely fell in love with the experience. Um that wasn't, however, the seminal moment that, that put me on this path. Um, what happened the next fall was that my English teacher. Now, by now, I'm a, a senior in high school, and my English teacher had scheduled for us to go see a production of The Glass Menagerie at the Arizona Theater Company there in Tucson. And I didn't know anything about it. We hadn't read the play. Um, uh, it was just it was a, a field trip that we went, and it was the first time. You know, I had done, like, little skit plays that we had written in sixth grade, and I played in the band in, in eighth, seventh and eighth grade, and I had done, like I said, I stayed doing speech and interpretive speech and impromptu and expository speech uh, from my freshman year on with Mr. Boswell, but I had never, re- I'd never really been to a real theater and seen a real play. I don't know how much you know about Glass Menagerie, but um, it's a story about a really dysfunctional family. And uh, the single male um, in that family is Tom, and he's taking care of his mom, who's on the verge of probably now what we would call Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> and then there's Laura, you know, the sister that's broken, that's, uh, a, you know, they call her a cripple, um, and uh, Tom uh, has given up his his hopes and his dreams in order to keep the family together and take a job and provide for them. He works the third shift and he wants to join the merchant marines and see the world and he foregoes all of that in order to take care of his family. Now this was a time where I was taking care of my younger brother. I grew up that, that way. I learned to cook. I learned to do all the household chores. Um and we were home alone a lot when my mom was a single mom and my dad wasn't in the picture anymore. Um and um so that that resonated with me. And then there's those points in the play where Tom goes out on the the, the fire escape and you know, lights a probably a Paul mall, if not a you know a, a camel non-filter and sits down and and kind of bears his soul with to the audience and talks about you know what he's going through and at that moment in the theater that day um it was as if um i had been you know cleansed of this idea of of uh, my world being, you know, me being completely alone in the world. And, um, I felt a kinship for the character. I felt the kinship for his story, for his trials, for what he was trying to do and what he was giving up to do so. And I just had the realization that I wasn't alone, even though the play was written in the fifties. Um, and it, you know, clearly was set in a time that wasn't relatable to me by clothing, by music, um, by the set, uh, you know, by the way the people spoke. There was something about it that spoke to me that told me that I wasn't alone, that other people had traveled this road, and that here was my story to some degree relating, you know, being reflected back at me. And I felt an overwhelming serenity when the show was over. And, um, I still remember it to this day. It, it, I just felt, I mean, to really just put it in a nutshell, I felt like I wasn't alone and I felt uplifted and I felt almost joyous. I just felt like I was going to be okay in the world. Like, uh, other people were going to be able to relate to me and my story and I wasn't alone and other people lived this way and other people had these trials and these troubles and, for some reason, it just, it just resonated with me like nothing else, maybe ever, at least up to that point, certainly. Um, and I remember walking across the parking lot in that bright Arizona sunshine, you know, two th- or four o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon after a noon matinee, you know, back to the bus. And I thought to myself, I have been given such an incredible gift today. If there's, if there's any way that I can return this gift, anyone on any level if I have the wherewithal or the skills or I can find a way to give this back and and for a a person of my age that was probably uh it probably wasn't terribly common but I remember it like it was yesterday feeling like if I can do this for another kid then this is what I'm going to try and do um and I essentially at that point um really kind of you know, gave up, um, any kind of organized athletics. Um, I went to the theater, uh, department at the high school and got myself into advanced drama and, uh, got into every show of the, of the rest of this, of my senior year. And then I was determined to, um, to study it in college and see, I didn't know if I was any good at it. Um, but to see if I could, uh, you know, make a living. It was that moment in my life where I just was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this a go because I don't want to try and give this gift back—the gift that I've been given." And it was that day in the theater, a student matinee of Glass Menagerie at Arizona Theater Company when I was fifteen, sixteen.
1: As an audience member, you were really affected, but then you're yeah. deciding, "I'm gonna go on the stage." And so, what, what was that like for you when you started? becoming the characters and stepping into that that place at first w- was it that heavy or were, was it just something fun and how were you approaching that and looking at it
0: well it was fun when i played you know private lopez the year before in mass when i was just doing it on a lark to fill that requirement to keep the credit hours coming so i could graduate i wasn't a terribly good student um i was bored quite a bit um and there were certain people that challenged me and those are the couple of two people i remember from high school and five or six from college. But um, uh, I remember it was the, the real ironic thing is the first like lead part that I got um, after I had made the decision, I was playing an abusive father an alcoholic abusive father. I of course wanted to play the ingenue boy because I could totally relate to that. And he falls in love with this girl from he's on, he's from the other side of the tracks and his father's an alcoholic and is abusive. And I wanted to play that part. But I, you know, it's funny. I guess there was always a maturity about me because of what I had been through that, uh, I never played that. You know, I never was Romeo. I was always Mercutio. So even though I wanted to play those parts, I never got to, and I wanted to play the son, and I ended up playing the abusive father, and I, I sunk myself into that. I had, not that my father was abusive, but that my father was, was, um, he was, he was kind to, to to, almost to a fault where that he was not communicative and drank away his pain and he had a lot of it um i understand him now in a way that you know after he passed away i got to know him a lot better because i got to know the secrets and that all became clear but um i remember you know really diving into the role i didn't really know what i was doing but i had an idea of what that world looked like and i certainly knew what it I knew how to behave drunk, and I could certainly get angry. I could certainly find rage within myself in order uh, um, uh, to bring that to the table at, in that performance in a high school theater. But um, it was a really cathartic experience um, to be able to find a way to uh, – it was therapy, you know, it was a way to get rid of all of this st- – Stuff that I never could talk about and then the thing about it is as you know with the theater is um you find that place that you for us it's church it's our cathedral it's it's a safe haven it's it's sanctuary you find a tribe of people that are like-minded that you have things in common with that you have a built-in trust and respect even before you start to work because you have that in common and um so I found that tribe. I found those people. I found a place finally in my high school experience um that I felt safe and comfortable and wanted and um or I felt like um uh like I was valid and valued and it validated me. Uh and it just made me that's when I decided, you know, I mean I wasn't a terribly good snoopy because I'm not a great singer and <laughs> dancing is not my forte yeah but I had a ball doing that but playing that father and then doing some Shakespeare there um uh even though I probably didn't understand what I was saying uh you know the way I do now anyway I mean I really just it just took off for me and I thought well if I can if I can go to college and boy oh boy you know neither my dad never said anything and you know, my dad never discouraged me my mom certainly did um you know, uh, cause there's no future in this. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a conversation we had into my thirties. Um, uh, but, um, uh, I decided that I, you know, if I was going to go to college, uh, cause I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, nothing really, nothing, nothing other than this, all of a sudden this spark, the last two years of, of my high school experience, there was nothing else that kind of made me want to get out of bed in the morning, you know, but this started to do that for me. And so I, you know, I took a semester off and I worked and I made a little money and, and, you know, decided that I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to go to college and I wanted to study theater and um my father of course was working at the u of a and uh that allowed me to go uh for a very reasonable price a price that i couldn't have paid other places eventually i wanted to transfer and i tried to get into the university uh, the college of santa fe um but it was just too expensive um so i stayed at the university of arizona and i got my degree there i got two degrees there and and um uh i learned uh again trials and tribulations i learned um uh I was told that I'd never, I'd never make a living doing it and, uh, that I should learn how to hang lights or, uh, you know, learn how to sew costumes or, you know, do makeup or something because I wasn't going to make it. And that just lit another fire under me. And, and I just said, watch me. And, and after that, you know, I helped start two theaters and, uh, have been working in regional theater as a, you know, uh, an equity actor for the last 20 years. So, um, It's been an interesting road. It's been a really interesting journey. And I think though, um, knowing now the amount of teaching that I do and the people that I've, the people that I've, that I've stayed in contact with, you know, that have just graduated from either NYU at Tisch or, or, uh, I have a student now who's at the University of Minnesota in their theater program. And, and I realized that what I did or what I wanted to do that day in that high school, in that parking lot at Arizona Theater Company, what I wanted to do was like affect Somebody's life and give the gift that I've been given. Uh, I've done that and it makes me really happy.
1: Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of us can relate to that sort of cathartic experience yeah. when either we first saw theater or, or when we first, you know, were in a play. I know I can relate to that in high school to, to the extent that, you know, there wasn't, it, it's a very safe boundary, those, three walls and that you know that fourth invisible wall where you can express the thoughts and emotions through these other characters that you don't necessarily get to do in your real life or there's not permission to do that or there's not space to do that or it's not safe to do that and and then you know you're having this you know this opportunity to express and um as well as you know just embody the human experience and it can be so life-changing i think that's why a lot of us, you know, started doing it. Um, The question comes in, um, you know, how you translate that into becoming a professional and, and where that sort of, how that transition happens, you know, because not everybody does that. You know, sometimes it's just, Theater as a tool for healing and then the healing happens and then people move on to other, other places. Some of us are, you know, still wanting to pursue a professional career, but we get sidetracked by other things or we're doing other things. So, um, it was, I hear that it was so clear for you what you wanted the path to be and that Mm -hmm. every obstacle that presented itself, you, you said, nope, nope, I'm moving forward. What do you think kept you moving forward no matter what and how have you translated that original experience into something professional where you're making money and you have to have that business hat on and and all of those things
0: um well i think that um it's probably just easy to say i wasn't really that good at anything else you know i often think about what like if you if you took it away from me would i be able to find Something that would would give me what what the theater does. The theater touches me on a on a on a level so deeply in my soul, um, and I and and I, I think because of that, and, and it goes to um, it goes to family. I mean, um, it goes to tr- that tribe thing. It goes to the human experience and the storytelling. Um, the oral storytelling, I mean, I love people, I, I, I admire people who can paint, who can write, um, who can sculpt, uh, um, but I admire the storyteller probably the most, um, mm. because the storyteller, I think maybe it just is primal, it dates back to the earliest, you know, cave paintings, you know, and then it becomes an oral tradition once we get language. And then the Greeks built these huge, you know, cathedral-like amphitheaters that still stand today in order to share their story. Um, we do it today, you know, film and television, um, uh, what you're doing with your podcast, you know, um, but I still think at its core, the theater is the oldest, uh, the oldest form of the way, you know, if we're not sitting around a campfire uh, telling our oral history, when we go to the theater, that's what we're doing. And we're getting our life reflected back to us so that we have empathy for other human beings and for the human condition. I mean, you know, it's very much, you know, Hamlet's advice to the players and what, what the players mean to him in his situation, you know, having you know, his father be murdered by his uncle and his uncle married to his mother and, you know, uh, his girlfriend betraying him and his friends betraying him and him being alone on the island uh, of the castle that he's in, Elsinore, in Denmark. And then when the players arrive, he's uplifted in a way that that is a life raft for him for the center section of that play. And I think even going back to, you know, the way Shakespeare puts puts plays within his plays I, I think there's something uh in our dna um, about uh, about that kind of storytelling and for me it's the only thing the you know i mean i'm i'm a teacher i have a nonprofit um i spend probably 40 35 to 40% of my time now um, in the classroom Working with young people uh, anywhere from, you know, fourth grade all the way up into college, just depending on the different things that I'm, you know, teaching. Uh, um, But um, uh, uh, that makes me money, and um, I'm proud of the accomplishment uh, of that, and I'm proud of the business that I'm building. um, But it, it doesn't fulfill me. In a way that, um, going to rehearsal does. There's a sense of community and a sense of, and of course, because I come from a sports background, that whole teamwork thing, that whole locker room thing is, mm-hmm. is reigned in me from when I was a real young boy. And, um, th- there's something about being, uh, on a team and having a common goal and putting your ego away and, and and that's really why I, I love the theater. When the experience is right, there is no ego. There is only um, the story, and and the director, and the and the and the writer in absentia most oftentimes, um, obviously, and, and then the designers, um, and the actors, and the stage management, and then the crew. When you move into the theater, everybody is working tell the story in the best possible way they can and there can't be ego in that and when things don't work it's because there is ego in that whether it's a director or a, you know or, or one actor or when when a mess gets made it's because ego is taken over and when it works in, 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 a, in a way that is is profound and moving and touching and cathartic for the actor as well as the audience it's because the ego is put aside and the story becomes paramount so i think um Uh, that's never gone away from me. It might be stronger than ever. Um, There was a time in the not-too-distant past where I was working all over the country and was working... You know, the average equity actor, um, cause I get the, you know, I get the, the new, the newsletters and every one, every year there's one that puts out exactly how many, how many weeks we work, how much money we make by region. It breaks it down. Um, and I look at it every year and I always find it fascinating that the average, uh, there's only 40,000 of us in the union. It's not a big union, uh, but the average weeks worked in a single year is 13. Mm -hmm. So that means most people are working one job, um, or one-and-a-half jobs in a year. Um, and I was working 40 weeks. I was working for years. I was working nonstop. You know, I'd have a week off here, a week off there, and then go to the next gig. Um, and so that's not, it's not like that anymore. And um, uh, as I've gotten older, you know, because when I was in my wheelhouse from the time I was about, when I took my card at 32 to about 50, Uh, that was my life and I worked all the time and I, I got my teaching chops a little bit. I'd do a week here. I'd go do an adjunct professor thing or I'd do guests like, uh, you know, I'd go in and do uh, a couple of classes, but I didn't, I didn't do it, it, um, uh, anything more than to, to, uh, as a favor to somebody or as, well, I've got a week free and that's what I'll do. Yeah, I can come in and I can do that. at your school or your college or where, you know, I can come in and do that. Now I do it a lot more, but, and I noticed that, um, and I know people, my business partner for one, um, she was, a, a, a professional actress. Um, I've worked with her a few times. Um, she's very, very good. And we started this business and she has no desire anymore to go. She doesn't need to go on the stage anymore. She likes to direct. Um, but, um, She doesn't feel the need to, um, go into the rehearsal hall anymore or to be on stage or to be in a show. Um, I think it's different for her. She has children and, and, and there is a shift that happened there, but she loves working with kids and it fills her up to uh, a degree that, you know, we've had this conversation where I've said, I, I, I wish I felt the same way. Um. We partner in the classroom a lot of times. We're really good together. Um, but I don't get out of it what she, I I don't get the same. I don't get the same. My cup don't run it over the way it does for her. I need more and I need, um, I, I need, I need to tell story. I still need, I can teach it. I can, I can help you with your audition. I can do it. I can direct a show. I can, I can. Really make you make you a better actor if that's what you want to do, or I can just academically help you get through. You know, you need to know what are the themes of Romeo and Juliet, or you want to know how to speak the speech, or whatever it is. I can help you with that, <clears throat> but that doesn't that 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 doesn't fill the same hole. And that hole, that fire, still burns in me as much as it ever did. Um, and um, now. Every time I get to work or when I'm working, I cherish it even more. I don't think I ever really took it for granted, but um, I was on a nice little roll, a roll that most people, (coughs) excuse me, most people, um, most people don't get uh, for 18, almost 20 years of nonstop working, like really great gigs, really, really good roles. I played all the major roles in the Shakespearean canon and some of the best contemporary roles um, at theaters all over the country. And I don't think I ever took it for granted, and I was always hungry, and I was always my own business manager, and I always was reaching out to people and trying to make things happen, and, you know, because um, you have to, you know, if you're not in New York, you're everything, you're your own business, you're your own agent, you're your own marketing, you have to do everything, um, and I loved doing it, um, um but now, because uh, I only work probably you know, maybe 18 to 26 weeks, about half the year, like I said, um, I, I really relish it. Like, you know, the Macbeth that I just finished doing at Berkeley rep. I mean, that to me was, I was, I was just in heaven every single day to go spend time with these people that, um, uh, that I just fell in love with from the first day because we were all there to tell story, to tell this story. And, uh, uh, I think it's, I, I don't think it's ever going to go away for me. I just, I, I just cherish it. And I mean, you saw me when I came down there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a good teacher, um, but it doesn't, It, 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 it it's really, ins- it's really invigorating and inspiring in the moment. And then when I'm done with it, I'm itching to go, I'm itching to go like dig in to the human psyche and, and the human psychology of whatever, of a story that, that I'm not familiar with mm-hmm. and I dig in and, and, and try and crack that nut. That's, that's what I want to do um, as often as I can for as long as I can.
1: That's the end of episode 11 featuring Scott Coopwood. I hope you enjoyed it. He's such a passionate, intense guy and... In the next episode, we dive even more into Shakespeare and his journey as an actor. So I can't wait to bring that to you. Um, Please remember to tell your friends about Living the Dream Acting, the podcast. Like us on Facebook. Please, please like us. I get really insecure and take it personally when I'm not liked. Yes, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at artist underscore dreams. Even better, just talk to me on Facebook and Twitter so I feel like I'm not alone in the world. Send me some love, please. Okay, enough groveling. I'm Christina Kipper, and thanks again for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to Living the Dream Acting, the podcast. Have questions or a story you'd like to share? We'd love to hear from you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit our website at livingthedreamacting.com.